And if you would turn to the book of Jonah, I believe in your pew Bible, it's about page 775. I have the chapter printed out for you on the bulletin insert with a brief outline that you can follow along. Jonah and Nahum are both prophets who had a message of God for Nineveh and the Assyrian people, Nineveh being the capital of Assyria. But something was unique about Jonah in his prophecy, that Jonah was actually the only prophet in the entire Old Testament that was called to actually go face-to-face to a Gentile nation, an enemy of Israel, and personally call them to repentance face-to-face. Nahum wrote an oracle against Assyria, and in Nahum chapter 1, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. It's a prophecy or an oracle of judgment that God swiftly brought to the Assyrians. But Jonah preached his message about 150 years before Nahum. And we see after we read this chapter, a period of about 150 years of God's grace and favor to this nation after the events that we're going to read in Jonah chapter 3. Let's look at what set off this period of time of God's grace to these Ninevites. Jonah chapter 3, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth, and Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that's in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from His fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He had said He would do to them, and He did not do it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we look at the life of Jonah again, we thank You for the lessons that we learn, the lessons we learn about You and Your steadfast love, that salvation belongs to the Lord. We thank You for Your sovereignty and salvation and how we see it in the people of Nineveh. Lord, how we see it in our lives, the way in which You have orchestrated the people and the messengers and the time and the place for us to hear and believe. I pray, Lord, that we would appreciate what You're doing here in the history of God's people and this people that are apart from Israel, outside of the covenant, Lord, and how You work mightily to bring them in to Your 
circle. Lord, I pray that you would help us to learn and understand, to appreciate more your sovereign grace. We pray this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. You heard the message that Jonah brought. It was a strong one. It was a message of judgment that called for repentance. And I think if you were to look at culture today, it's very similar to the culture of Jonah's day that a message of repentance is not a very popular message. Calling people to, to repentance is in some ways offensive. Uh, people are hurt by that kind of talk of judgment, talk of wickedness, talk of sin, and our need to turn from it. Repentance, I believe, is offensive for four reasons that we see in Jonah's day, but also in our day. First, repentance requires the existence of a sovereign creator king who rules over all, even us. Repentance requires a lawgiver and judge that sets the absolute standard for good and evil. That offends many people. Repentance requires acknowledging we fail and that we need a perfect substitute to die in our place. That offends people who think, I can do this on my own, I can, I can be good enough. Repentance finally requires humble confession of our wickedness and turning from it to live righteously. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's still ringing in Jonah's mind as he prayed this prayer in the belly of the fish with that climactic phrase, salvation belongs to the Lord. And now, He comes with a message to the people of Nineveh. In today's passage, Jonah sees God's salvation comes when he wants it, how he wants it, and to whom he wants to bring it. If God wants people to have faith and repentance, He'll give it. If He wants revival and reformation, God will give it. There's no one so wicked and undeserving, and there's no prophet so arrogant that thinks he could keep that message from coming. No one can stop God's plan because salvation belongs to the Lord. Do you believe that God can use you to bring a message of salvation to somebody you think is unreachable? Somebody who maybe you thought about this week fit that bill of somebody who doesn't deserve God's grace, doesn't deserve God's mercy, only deserves His wrath and judgment. Do you know that God can bring you to the point where you could bring a message to them of His God's grace and mercy. The God who saves gives the message of salvation to people who rebel. Runaway prophets get to hear the message of salvation. He gives rebel prophet a second chance to bring this message, a message of salvation to a nation of rebels. But God is the one that makes sure that we have the right message. He's the one that sends with the message. We can't go with our own message or make up a message that we think will be palatable, one that everybody would buy into. The Word is our message. Look at verse 1 through verse 4. The Word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. God is very explicit here. The message that he's going to bring is going to be the message that God says, not his own message. Left to his own, I think Jonah would bring a very different message. Well, left to his own, he would have gone the opposite direction and brought no message. But God gave 
the message that he should bring. So in verse 3, Jonah rose, went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord is repeated yet again. Where do we go to find the message that people need to be saved? If salvation is from the Lord, we need to go to the word of the Lord in order to understand what people need, how people are saved. And so, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city. Going a day's journey, he called out, yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Not quite a warm, fuzzy message. It was short, abrupt, maybe even abridged a bit, but God can even use a short message to miraculously work revival and reformation with people. He can transform people with those few words, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The way he brought that message, uh, the, the wording in verse 2 says to call out against them and bring that message. And he called out in verse 4. Uh, that word, as one commentator said, rendered to call out means to cry. And it suggests a manner befitting those who bear God's message. They should not sound it out. They should sound it out loudly, plainly, urgently, with earnestness and marks of emotion in their voice. Languid, languid whispers will not wake sleepers. Call out. Bring that message with confidence. Not confidence in yourself, not confidence in your wisdom, your eloquence, that all your points start with the same letter, or you can rhyme, or you can craft the message in a certain way that you'll gather a big crowd. No. The message is from the Lord. Have your confidence that you're speaking what God's Word speaks, and you can be confident that He'll bring salvation to whomever He wants. It doesn't depend on you. It doesn't weigh on you. Make sure you understand the message yourself as you bring that message. The message will truly bring faith and repentance is really the Word of the Lord. I believe that today we have such a candy-coated message that you hear across American evangelicalism today and many churches from different denominations believe in a Jesus that will make your life better. And if you just believe on Him, He will fix everything wrong in your, in your life. It's kind of a self-help-oriented message to materialistic people who are consumers of whatever works now, whatever will help me out, whatever will ensure that I can have Jesus and everything else, how I can have Jesus and my best life now. Now, the author of that book gets a lot of uh, ribbing for that, but it's not new for us to hear people make up messages that we think people want to hear. Someone once said, God helps those who help themselves. No, it's not in the Bible. Benjamin Franklin said that. A message of self-help is one that's very popular among people that think that, you know, we got to just dig in, work hard, and God will honor that. God is love. He'll accept that. And so we bring a message that is not fit for salvation according to the way that God calls us. And so we need to know the message for ourselves, and then we need to speak that message and be able to, at least, the Scriptures say, be able to give an account for the hope that's within you. Why do you have hope that you can stand at the judgment seat and not be burned up, not be destroyed? 
not be cast into hell? What hope do you have to stand in front of the God of the universe, the judge of all? Do you know that there's a sovereign creator king that rules all? Could you describe this lawgiver and judge as an absolute standard of good and evil? Can you acknowledge that you fail and that you need a perfect substitute and that substitute is Christ? Can you humbly confess your wickedness and turn from it to, to live righteously? When we know the message, we can proclaim it with confidence because we know it comes from the Lord. Faith and repentance has to be the response to this message. Look at verse 5 with me. The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The first half of verse 5 is faith in God. The second half evidences repentance that leads to life. Our Westminster Shorter Catechism puts those two thoughts right back to back in question 86 and 87. What is faith in Christ, in Jesus Christ, and what is repentance unto life? Both are necessary for salvation. Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon Him alone for salvation as He's offered to us in the gospel. For the Old Testament believer, they were trusting in what all the sacrifices they were performing were ultimately pointing to, the perfect sacrifice, the Messiah, Jesus, to come. Believe the promise of a Messiah. They had faith in Jesus Christ. What is repentance unto life? Well, repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God. How do we know that's happened? Well, there's fruit that is in keeping with repentance that we see that the prophet Joel, when he describes the, the great and terrible day of the Lord as it was coming in judgment, he says, yet now, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and with weeping and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. For He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. It's a heart work. It's not just the outward de- demonstration of, of sackcloth and ashes, but it is a heart change. In 2 Corinthians 7, Paul describes what this repentance looks like when he says, for even more, I, if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. You remember he wrote 1 Corinthians to correct some very pro- difficult problems in their church, sins that they were engaged in. And so, he brought that conviction of sin, called for them to repent, and they grieved. They had con- conviction of their sin, and that led to repentance. He says, as it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And he describes this repentance in terms that we could see in the Ninevites as well. See what earnestness there is what, that this godly grief has produced in you. What eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal. 
I'm going to fight this sin. It's wicked and terrible, and I'm forsaking it, and I'm running hard after God. This is a complete change. Repentance is change. It's not just thinking about change. It's not just hoping for change. It's not even praying for change. It's change because it's worked by God in our lives. It's not all you. Remember this. It doesn't depend on you and you only. It's what God works in you. I wonder, what would you change about yourself if you knew you only had 40 days before you met God in judgment? Matthew Henry says, 40 days is a long time for a righteous God to delay judgments, yet it is but a little time for an unrighteous people to repent and reform in. And should it not awaken us to get ready for death, to consider that we cannot be sure that we may have 40 days to live? As Nineveh then was that it should stand 40 days? We should be alarmed if we're not sure if we live a month, yet we're careless, though we are not sure to live even a day. If you had 40 days, what would you repent of first? What would you change? What would you embark on in new obedience to the Lord? Again, you don't do this in your own strength. You aren't alone in this process. God works in you to will and to do His good pleasure. The same grace that saved you, salvation is of the Lord, that same Lord gives you grace and power to live righteously. In Titus 2, 11 to 14, Paul says that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. That's a high calling. But it's grace that trains us to do that. The Ninevites didn't just get on a self-help routine and think the power of positive thinking was going to change them. They lived out repentance that God had to work in them. And Paul goes on to describe a new perspective on the upcoming judgment, meeting the judge of the universe, when he says, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. God's grace trains us in all that. Repentance is necessary, but that's a gift of God. Faith is vital, crucial, but that's a gift of God. God's grace is active, and we don't repent just once in our lives. The Christian life is a life of repenting and turning back to the Lord. And what comes? We see this revival break out, the, the reformation that takes place in Nineveh. And in verse 5, we saw that it is introduced to us. The people of Nineveh believed God, and they put on a fast and sackcloth from the greatest to the least. And now we, we hear it spelled out how it came down from the king to the people. Look in verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne. He removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. He issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh, by the decree of the king and the nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way, from the violence that's in his hand. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. You notice the attitude with that? 
It's not, okay, I did this, God, now you got to do this. It's, I'm going to repent and fast and lay in ashes, and we're going to pray that God would show mercy. We don't deserve mercy. We can't demand mercy. We have to cry out for mercy. The text goes on to describe this revival and reformation in terms of fasting and sackcloth for themselves and for the animals. Fasting is a way of using physical hunger pains to remind us of our need for the Lord, our hunger and thirst for righteousness, and that the Lord Himself can feed us, taste and see that the Lord is good. These physical pangs can point us to our spiritual need, and only God can satisfy that. And so, they extended that fasting not only for themselves but for their livestock. So, when you heard the livestock mooing for food, they knew, oh, there's that hunger, there's that need. And then sackcloth. Sackcloth was used by people in great mourning. When someone died, the mourners would put on sackcloth, this scratchy, itchy material that would constantly be an irritation to them. This uncomfort, this discomfort would be a symbol of their need to humble themselves. It's a grieving and mourning for our sin. Now, I spoke to Brenda Helmick this morning about her five little wiener dogs. Could you imagine her dressing in each of those little wiener dogs with some sackcloth, refusing to feed them, and how would they feel? Oh, she would hear about it. She'd hear about it all the time from those dogs. Can you imagine being reminded by all your cattle, all your livestock, and your own stomach of the discomfort of the grief that you should have because of your sin? I think that fasting is an excellent way for us to be devoted and serious about our prayers to the Lord, about our understanding our own spiritual hunger and need. In 1 Kings 21, Ahab had stolen a field from Naboth, his vineyard. And when the prophet Elijah came to him and told him about the judgment that was coming to him because he did this wicked thing, Ahab heard those words. He tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh. He fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he's humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days I will bring the disaster upon his house. The Lord answered that prayer that was evidenced, that grief and that sorrow for sin that was evidenced with the sackcloth. From the king came that proclamation that transformed an entire nation. Could we... Or are we seeing that kind of transformation in any nations around our world? Is that still going on today? Can God, the God of heaven and earth, still bring revival and reformation? He can, and He is. Last March at our missions conference, we heard from a missionary in the Middle East. I've heard from other missionaries in the Middle East, missionaries in Lebanon, in Jordan, in Iraq, Sudan, Iran, Syria, Turkey. Muslims are repenting and coming to faith in Jesus Christ in unprecedented numbers. This is going on across the Muslim world. Churches are being established. Training and discipleship is going on, raising up 
the next generation of believers. World Magazine writer Warren Cole Smith interviewed a 25-year missionary, David Garrison, who has documented his findings about this Muslim phenomena. He believes between 2 and 7 million converts to Christianity in the past two decades. That's incredible. That's amazing what God is doing in His book, A Wind in the House of Islam. He gives some of the credit to the strictness of the Ayatollah in forcing other Muslims to think, is this what we really want? And asking more about Christianity. A missionary in Turkey, I sat down with him at first watch, and he's telling me, you have it harder here than I have it in Turkey because people will come up to my church and they'll say, tell us about this Jesus. We want to know more about him. And here, you can't get anybody interested in how to deal with their sin problem and to be right with a holy God. This revival can't stop because God's at work behind the scenes. And I haven't even got to what's going on in Africa, in China, despite the persecution. Revival, reformation happens because it's God at work. Verse 10, when God saw how they returned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He said He would do to them, and He did not do it. We're going to get to chapter 4, and we're going to see Jonah's response to this. Our response to it ought to be, praise God. He relented from the disaster that He was going to bring. He showed mercy to those Ninevites. He shows mercy to me. God's gracious to them. Praise God. He's gracious to me. This mercy and grace is the message of Jonah. And the message of Jonah is one of satire and irony. It's kind of the Babylon Bee of the day because the author mixes in Jonah's response and his problems with God's response and his answers. The irony is rich throughout Jonah, but especially here. Jonah used a certain word in his short sermon, verse 4, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That Hebrew word overthrown is used of the judgment of God that he would pour out, for example, in Genesis 19 on Sodom and Gomorrah. He overturned Sodom and Gomorrah by throwing fire and brimstone. The, The irony here is that this same word is used to describe how God can turn or overturn the heart of someone to himself. It's used in 1 Samuel chapter 10 of King Saul. It says, when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. Turning his heart was the work of God in this person who was walking away, this king. The irony is that Jonah's message that God would overthrow Nineveh is actually fulfilled, but not in the way that Jonah hoped it would happen. The Ninevites' hearts were overthrown by God turning their hearts to Himself through faith and repentance. When Jonah, what Jonah intended to bring God's destruction, God intended to bring revival and reformation. That's the kind of God He is. That's the kind of God that we serve. Bringing the message to people who seem beyond saving. Uh, That's the work of missions. That's the work of evangelism. It was 25 years ago that John Piper wrote the book, Let the Nations Be Glad. In an introduction to that book, we read that missions exists because worship doesn't, emphasizing the central role and the ultimate goal 
of worship of God, then it's also meant to fuel the cause of missions so that God would gather for Himself His people from every tongue, tribe, and nation so that they would become worshipers of the one true God. God is pursuing worshipers from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And for us, the Great Commission stands. Jesus says, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. What role are you going to have? There's two options, to go or to send others to go in your place. There's nothing else for us to do. There's no sidelines to this commission. God gives some of you a call to go. Some of you may need to prepare to be a messenger. It may be here in Overland Park. It may be somewhere abroad. But be prepared to give an answer for the hope that's within you. and Bring a message of salvation. But for many of us, the option is to support with our prayers, with our financial giving, those who are already gone in our stead and ministering. We have 10 missionary families that we support as a congregation. You can see their faces and you can pray for them on the missions board down in the hallway. You can pick up material about what they're doing. And you can pray to the God who gives repentance and faith, the God who gives revival and reformation, that He would use those missionaries to bring the message, not a watered-down message, not a misspoken message, but the Word of God, to people who need the grace of God. We need God's grace here in our country, in our state, in our city. Maybe God is equipping you and fitting you to be a spokesperson to your neighbor, to your coworker, to somebody you think is beyond the hope of the gospel. God, who is the God of revival and reformation, can do that. How will you be used of God to accomplish this mission? Let's pray together. Father, We are so blessed to know that you have revealed yourself in your word and you've revealed yourself to us. You have subdued our hearts. You have called us to be your own. And Lord, I pray with this message that you have called us that we would be willing and excited to see that message go to others, to the Ninevites that we imagine in our own lives, people beyond your reach. But Lord, we know nothing is impossible for you. Work your plan, bring salvation to whom you will, and gain glory as you gather worshipers to yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.